Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Charlie, I got to tell you, I'm feeling like a teenager again. We got uh, got Ruskies in the news and uh, people doing uh, duck and cover under their desk uh, nuclear uh, attack drills. And uh, it's, it's, it's the 1980s all over. Who's doing the nuclear attack drills? <laughs> I don't know. Someone, I, I saw someone talking about uh, doing that at a school or something. It may have been a made-up story. Who knows? But... Um, What do you think about all this? Well, I think that... Let me me rephrase that. You have some words of caution. Yes, I think we're stuck in picking teams. Right. Which didn't take long and shouldn't have taken long and seems to have been done correctly in that only 2% of Republicans and 2% of Democrats think that we've been too harsh toward Putin. 80% of Republicans think we haven't been harsh enough. 44% of Democrats think we haven't been harsh enough. And I expect the difference there is in some part due to a more dovish instinct within the Democratic Party, but mostly due to the incumbent president being a Democrat. And so any criticism of his harshness is deemed a criticism of him. The point being that we have not really hesitated on the who is to blame part. We have come to that conclusion, that correct conclusion quickly. But my worry is that we haven't moved beyond it. My worry is that we have stalled out at putting yellow and blue avatars in our social media accounts and sharing propaganda some of which can be useful in wartime, necessary even, and rah-rahing Zelensky of Ukraine and booing Putin and not really moving on to comprehend all of the potential consequences and issues that are in play, many of which come with profound questions, questions that are far more difficult to answer than which team do you want to win. So I wrote a piece saying, look, guys, we've done this bit. Now let's acknowledge that some of the things we thought were true were not. Viral memes. Those 13 soldiers on Snake Island did not die. They were captured. There is no ghost of Kiev shooting down Russian aircraft. There aren't random women on buses carrying AK-47s. At least the photographs we have were fake. And as such, maybe it's time to take a sober approach to this and evaluate what is likely to happen next, which I think is a lot of people are going to die as Russia starts shelling cities and bringing in heavy artillery and evaluate what it is that we're prepared to do because you know it's a lot easier to put a, a Ukrainian flag in your Twitter profile picture than it is to respond if Vladimir Putin flattens a city or, heaven forfend, invades Poland. And equally with the non-violent steps we've taken, banking sanctions, for example, there will be knock-on consequences for Americans for a long time. Even if they're the right thing to do, which I think broadly they are. 
And I just see none of this. I, I see a, a cheap approach to this war and the belief that cheerleading is substance uh, and that the preferences we all hold, which I assume are for the Ukrainians to reject the Russians and for the Russians to go home with their tail between their legs, are likely to come to fruition when I'm unfortunately not sure they are. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things uh, I write about and talk about a lot is the way in which U.S. foreign policy is just entirely captured by domestic politics and really kind of short-term dumb domestic politics, you know, partisan flag waving and that kind of thing. And now we have an issue in which there is broad, if not quite universal, agreement between the two major uh, camps, at least about, as you say, you know, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy in the story, which is kind of the level at which we we tend to have these conversations. And now we don't quite know what to do because there isn't a real obvious way to make this an occasion for seeking some kind of petty partisan advantage other than some really silly stuff about, well, this wouldn't have happened if Trump were still president or this happened because Trump was president. Um, I note that with um, the world um, potentially on the brink of a truly catastrophic war, uh, the American political conversation is still at least 50% about Donald Trump, who has nothing to do with any of it. (laughs) Yeah, Um, that is um, just bananas. I tend to favor um, a pretty aggressive approach when it comes to um, the economic sanctions and things. I think that the um, attempt to narrowly target this stuff so that it only hurts Putin, his immediate circle, and a few Russian oligarchs is probably doomed to failure, uh, you know, with the EU cutting out um, two of the three biggest banks in Russia from their uh, swift sanctions and and the rest of that stuff. I think that we can um, keep close to our hearts the fact that there are lots and lots of Russians who are no happier about this than the Ukrainians are, who wish Putin were uh, elsewhere, um, preferably six feet underground, than where he is. And we don't want to go out of our way to unnecessarily hurt those people. But there isn't any way really to put economic pressure on a country without putting economic pressure on the country. Yes. Uh, which means and, on all the people who live there. Yeah. And I, and I agree with that entirely. But uh, what I'm mean here when i say we ought to think through the consequences uh is not that we shouldn't do it but Mm -hmm. that we often fail to look at our actions as if they were being done to us so if you remember back in 2017 when donald trump bombed syria and everyone said this was the day he became president remember (laughs) yeah I remember you and I both wrote, in fact, I looked this up this morning to check this wasn't a false memory. You and I both wrote pieces saying that the idea uh, that this wasn't an act of war, that this wasn't a military strike, which was the defense made by President Trump and his administration as a justification 
for why he didn't need to ask Congress for permission, which was a justification he got from Barack Obama, quite literally in this case, they cited the Obama administration's rationale, would have been so obviously farcical if Syria had lobbed 59 missiles into the California (laughs) desert and hit a military base, as to defy belief. And all this parsing that we do, we say, it's kinetic action. It's not war. Come on. You want to see what happens if a country bombs the United States and then says it wasn't military action? And I think the same thing is true of sanctions. Now, again, I know some people use this sort of couching as a means by which to attack the sanctions themselves. I'm honestly not doing that. I support the sanctions in this case. Oh, I didn't think you were, by the way. No, I'm just telling our audience. But, but... The language that we're seeing, not necessarily from Americans, but from the French, the Germans, and elsewhere, describing these sanctions as intended to cripple or destroy the Russian economy ought to be acknowledged. Because if somebody in the world, a major player, was involved in imposing sanctions on the United States that were designed to destroy the economy or cripple the banking sector, we would consider that to be extremely serious indeed. We would not say, look, it's not war because there's no battleship involved, because there's no artillery involved. We would regard this as a hostile act. And I just see no real acknowledgement of this in the mainstream. Perhaps I'm reading the wrong people. There are a lot of smart people out there who write on this and who know a great deal more than I do. But these are profound decisions that we're making. And the whole world is piling on almost like a social media mob. And I'm fine with that because it's good to see some unanimity against a figure such as Vladimir Putin. But there are consequences. And I just don't know to what extent we have actually grappled with them beyond deciding which side we're on. I mean, be, being on the right side is, is only the first step. That, that doesn't mean we would be fine with anything being done to Russia. So we have to ask what the, what the right approach is. And again, I'm just a little nervous that we've talked ourselves into this position where we expect the Ukrainian army and a bunch of citizen-led militias, very brave, very admirable, to prevail against the Russian military purely because everyone is so outraged. And that's just not how the world works. Yeah, I think your point about unintended consequences is worth um, maybe meditating on a bit. And one of the kind of ironic examples of that is that, um, you know, U.S. imports of of Russian oil are up steeply since 2019. And I'll bet you know why. But if you don't, I'll tell you. No, you should tell me. Sanctions on Venezuela. Ah. So when we stopped importing that um, heavy heavy uh, stock from Venezuela under the sanctions. Um, We needed a place to make it up. And there's this Russian product uh, that's not actually crude oil. It's sort of a semi-refined, almost crude oil that we can kind of, our refineries can use in place of that uh, heavy oil from Venezuela. And we started uh, importing uh, much more of that than we used to, which has, Russia is still not a very big supplier of U.S. oil. And this is on my mind because I'm writing about it for today or tomorrow. Uh, it's only about 3% of our um, imports. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a complicated story because it matters where that 3% ends up. Uh, for some refineries in some places, it's a much bigger deal than it is for others. So um, we're used to talking about mutual entanglement 
in the case of China, um, where there's so much um, complexity in our economic relationship. We don't often think of ourselves as being in the same position vis-a-vis Russia, although um, in some ways we are, and I think in some ways that aren't obvious or well understood with um, the potential to produce consequences that, as you say, would be both unintended and unexpected and potentially very negative. Yeah, and as conservatives, we should always be mindful of what happens to complex systems when they are swiftly interrupted. The world is a complex system. The global banking and energy supply lines are complex systems. And I think that this behavior is justified. And I think that it is Vladimir Putin's fault. I don't think it's NATO. I don't think it's the West. I don't think it's Ukraine. But I also know that we're nervous about knocking over fences. And we're knocking over a whole bunch of fences right now. And we're doing so with a certain abandon that just as a small C conservative makes me nervous, even if I uh, support the move. Yeah. Are there any particular um, things that, uh, that worry you more than others? Well, there are a couple of things, and um, as I always like to remind people, I'm I'm not an expert in this. But the first one is the United States benefits in certain ways from being the world's reserve currency and playing the role that it does within the global economy. And whenever the United States joins in with other countries to create a pariah state, it raises the incentives for that state and any other state that believes that it might at some point in the future become like that state or be seen like that state to create a rival set of systems, a set of systems that are outside of the control of or influence of the United States. Yeah. And I don't think this will be the immediate consequence of this, but If you start to see alternative systems rising up, then the benefits that the United States gains, one of which, incidentally, is a capacity to sustain our enormous debts from being the world's reserve currency, will be diminished. Now, again, I don't think that we can say, well, whatever, Russia can do whatever it likes because of that. But that is a potential consequence. And then another one is the way in which power is balanced or not balanced, depending on how you see it. In Europe, it is a good thing probably that Germany is going to spend more on defense. That sentence makes me nervous as a Brit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But there are some radical changes that we're now seeing that will, in ways we can't anticipate, change the power structure in Europe. We're seeing Switzerland saying it will no longer be neutral in certain circumstances. Ireland saying that sweden saying that we have potential new entrants to nato in uh the scandinavian region and we have ukraine applying for membership of the european union that this is a redrawing of the map at least it is if it comes to fruition and again i don't know what the alternative is and some of that change i'm glad to see but as a small C conservative, I wish we were having more conversations about it than just cheering on anything that looks like uh, it's sticking it to the bad guy. You know, you talked about developing systems that are outside of the control of the United States. I think one of the interesting examples of that uh, that's already come to pass, which is SWIFT, which is a lot of people are 
just sort of learning about, although it was in the news quite a bit when it was being uh, used for um, sanctions on Iran. You know, SWIFT is not only not under American control, it's basically under Belgian control. Yes. And Belgium is a very, very small country and people are not accustomed to thinking about very much. Um, I learned that last week. I'd always assumed it was British. Because it's called SWIFT and that just sounds British to you? Or? Yeah, but also because if you transfer money between European countries, which is something that I've done and is much more commonly done in Britain because it's a small island and it's close to France, Germany or what you will, um, then the system you use is SWIFT. And so whenever I got a letter from my bank, it would list my number and then under it there would be a SWIFT number that was different. Mm-hmm. I just assumed that it was British. I, I think you're right. It's partly because Swift reminds me of Jonathan Swift, who, well, he's Irish, but <laughs> not, at that point, that was Britain. Yeah. Or oh, there's a sore subject. <laughs> <laughs> Get Michael Brendan Doherty on this call. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I think that um, some of this stuff may end up being a, a little bit of a wake-up call um, to some Americans, I hope, about the actual complexity of the situation that we are in, and particularly in the need for being more thoughtful and proactive and energetic about maintaining and expanding our relationships with the other liberal democracies, particularly in Europe at this time, but also in Asia and the Indo-Pacific going forward for obvious reasons over on that side of the world. You know, there tends to be a, um, as you were alluding to earlier, a kind of a or B heads or tails approach to to politics in the United States. And recently it's been, well, the Democrats are sort of pro-internationalism, pro-Europe, uh, friendly toward the European Union, and Republicans don't like that stuff. And we're, Republicans are sort of semi-isolationists. There's this very strong sense of nationalism uh, over on the right right now. And um a sense of cultural alienation, particularly from from the European Union countries, which we see as being, you know, essentially progressive and left wing in their outlook, which of course I think is at least a simplification, if not just outright uh, wrong. But um, these sorts of situations, I think, force at least some of us—I mean, maybe not the bulk of the population, but people who are paying a little bit of attention—to reevaluate our thinking on that. And uh, say, yeah, I mean, maybe uh, Germany's not a country we think about a lot anymore. Uh, Poland's not a country we're used to thinking about very much. And Lithuania, most of us probably uh, couldn't find on a map. But as it turns out, these things are important. These countries are important um, on their own merits, but also more to the point in terms of their relationship with us and our relationship with the rest of the world and our particular security and economic interests, which are always in play in Europe and in Asia in ways that we don't often acknowledge or think about. And we'll have to respond to some of the responses from European countries in turn in ways that aren't churlish. Um, Germany has for a long time resisted the calls, calls that were loudly made by Donald Trump, it has to be acknowledged, to increase Mm -hmm. defense spending. That was a critique that transcended uh, American domestic politics. It's a critique, for example, with which the vast majority of my British friends, irrespective of which party they vote for, 
Agreed. And Germany has now, a little late, <laughs> done it. And it would be churlish if Americans continued to say, ah, oh, the Germans, they don't pay their own way. Now, that's a change. Yeah. That's a change you now have to factor in to uh, politics. Speaking of which, I wondered this yesterday. Do you think that this makes the case for increased or... Um, differently targeted American defense spending. I know you've been critical of the size of the defense budget. Yeah. Has this changed your mind in any way? Not really. Uh, you know, if you look at our defense budget, what we actually spend stuff, what we actually spend our money on, um, a lot of it is not particularly germane to these sorts of threats and challenges. You know, defense is like everything else in the government. It's, it's, it's mostly payrolls and uh, personnel. And um, so overall, I still think that we could shrink our defense budget significantly. I think there are things that we should be spending money on that we're not. Um, but there are a lot more things that we're spending money on that we probably shouldn't. So what do we spend money on that we shouldn't? We have probably still too many facilities. Um, we have, um, unnecessarily expensive and inefficient, uh, healthcare systems, administrative, uh, situations and, and that sort of thing. So we're not, you know, it's not like we spend a dollar on defense and 80 cents of it goes to building, uh, you know, an aircraft carrier somewhere. We spend a dollar on defense and 97 cents of it goes to personnel expenses in various places. And um, most of those personnel, of course, aren't soldiers. They aren't war fighting people. They are people in administrative uh, positions. And I think that a lot of that could be significantly reduced and improved. And what should we be doing that we're not? Probably modernizing the nuclear arsenal. Um, we have uh, programs in the Department of Energy to uh, maintain and oversee, and in some cases to to modernize that stuff. But my understanding from talking to people over there is that we don't um, do that sufficiently. There are concerns about whether some of these systems would even work if they were called upon. And, um, you know, it's a funny thing for me to say because I was writing about Reagan as the anti-nuclear guy today, and uh, I, I too would prefer to see the the abolition of, of nuclear weapons everywhere. Yeah. Um, but that being some ways down the road, um, we have a responsibility to keep our own uh, arsenal um, operating and ready to go. There's some problems with that. Um, there are some arguments for having a bigger navy. I'm not really enough of a you know military. Um, uh, person to say whether that actually is entirely persuasive or not, but I've, I've heard some pretty persuasive arguments on that. Um, there are some weapon systems that we have declined to develop that maybe we should have, and probably some that we developed that we shouldn't have. Um, John Hillen uh, is a good person to talk to about this stuff in some ways, um, but I mean, obviously better than I am. So uh, yeah, that kind of thing. I think that um, the Defense Department and the defense apparatus overall, which of course isn't just in the DOD, it's in other departments too, is like everything else in government. It uh, grows, it mutates, it expands, and um, it tends to end up operating mainly for the benefit of the people whom it employs rather than for the mission for which it was constituted.
So one thing neither of us has mentioned, but I think is obviously looming large here, is energy. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we talked about importing Russian oil in Venezuela, but you know, I've seen arguments that I do find a little persuasive, if tongue-in-cheek, that the Gavrilo Princip of this whole affair is Greta Thunberg. <laughs> <laughs> It certainly yeah. would look different, wouldn't it, if Europe were full of nuclear power stations in the way that France is? Yeah, I think that, of course, has been um, a tragic miscalculation um, and, uh, and a purely emotional thing. You know, the hostility toward nuclear energy as opposed to nuclear weapons is um, a holdover from the Cold War. You know, for years, we just thought of these as being kind of a, well, not all of us thought of it this way, but as being a sort of single unitary phenomenon, that nuclear power and nuclear weapons just went hand in hand necessarily and automatically. And the people who were the most uh, vocal and committed anti-nuclear weapons crusaders were also very, very strongly opposed to nuclear power. And, uh, and of course, you know, environmentalists are also opposed to it in many ways because of its virtues, not because of its vices, um, because there's an ideological undercurrent in the environmental world that doesn't want to see um, energy consumption growing at all. Um, they think that it, you know, it um, enables consumerism and capitalism and various kinds of things that they don't want to see um, growing and becoming more uh, part of life around the world. So we, um, didn't do nearly as much of that stuff as we could. There has been, I think, some useful revisiting of that in recent years. Um, I know when I was at the the UN climate thing in Glasgow, there were some pretty serious conversations about nuclear power. Um, I know some of those conversations are still going on. I think a lot of people look at France and say, seems to work pretty well for them and would work even better with infrastructure and facilities that were built um, with the technologies and capabilities we have now, rather than largely built in the 1960s and 70s. And um, as so much of the nuclear power infrastructure around the world is. So, yeah, I think that um, the Russians would be in an entirely different situation if that were the case, surely. But also they would be in a different situation if we had more uh, LNG export and import terminals and better infrastructure for um, dealing with and optimizing conventional energy resources than we do. And of course, we've seen this in the United States where you've got an environmental movement and a left in general that's just categorically opposed to developing any kind of conventional energy infrastructure, whether it's a pipeline, whether it's an export facility, uh, whether it's a new refinery. Uh, they just stand on that as uh, as hard and fast as they can. And I think we're going to have to revisit some of that stuff in, in the near future. I mean, our energy situation is is complicated, and I don't want to go into the whole uh, disquisition on it right now, but it's not so much a question of how much we produce, but of what specific kind of um, products we produce and where we produce it. So some of these things would be relatively easy fixes, like uh, we could be shipping gasoline from the refineries on the Gulf Coast, on the Gulf Coast to northeastern cities, if not for the Jones Act. Uh, the Jones Act just keeps that from happening in any kind of reasonable or economic way by preventing tankers from operating uh, from one U.S. port to another U.S. port. So it ends up being three times more expensive to ship stuff from uh, the Gulf Coast to the New England cities and the northeastern cities 
than it is to bring it in from Nigeria or from Saudi Arabia. So those are, are things that can be relatively, you know, quickly fixed. Um, we have questions about and issues about our the way our refineries are optimized. So the sort of oil we produce is not the sort of oil that most of our, many of our refineries are really set up to use. And that has to do with the fact that for so long, we just weren't producing very much oil in the United States. And so we became organized around the sort of oil that we could easily import, which was relatively heavy sour stuff uh, from the Middle East and other producers, rather than the light sweet stuff, as it's known, that we produce mostly in the United States. So some of that stuff can be worked out too, but that's that's not something that happens in a week or a month or even a year. That's a, that's a long-term um, issue and one that has you know some economic complexities that are not always immediately apparent. You know, but the simple version of it is that refineries and the people who own them don't want to expand the capacity because they're essentially creating new competition for themselves, and um, they like the current. Uh, utilization rates. We really have lost the propaganda fight over nuclear power. Absolutely. And it's just amazing. You have Chernobyl, which obviously is in Ukraine, which was an indictment of the communist system, not of the West, and which spawned an HBO documentary drama that was wholly inaccurate if extraordinarily entertaining mm -hmm. that is about as close to where most people think of nuclear power as i think it's possible to get and yet if you actually look at the one accident that we've had in the united states it would or, or should have been used as an example of how safe nuclear power is because three mile island was a success story yeah it worked yeah and somehow this got turned around into the opposite, into a disaster. But it wasn't a disaster. Yeah, I think the, the two words that we should probably be emphasizing on nuclear power for the next 10 years are zero emissions. You know, say what you will about nuclear power. It doesn't produce a lot of greenhouse gases. And it also, it, it leads people such as Greta Thunberg into complete incoherence. Yeah. And she was asked about nuclear power, and she responded by saying, the climate crisis is not just about the environment, it's a crisis of human rights, of justice, and of political will. Colonial, racist, and patriarchal systems of oppression have... Okay, so you don't have an argument against <laughs> nuclear power. <laughs> mad <then>. libs. <laughs> it's just mad libs. You know, you just, you just throw out uh, words and see what sticks. But yeah, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be too surprised that... Uh, fairly educated um, person who's just out of her teens is not the uh, most insightful or eloquent person on these issues. I just hope that this incident will refocus people on that question because the energy part of this is not the only part, but it is a large part of it, as you pointed out. We would be in a different situation if we had made different decisions. And, and as recently as a year ago, we were waving through Nord Stream 2, sending cash into Russia. And that's a choice. Mm -hmm. And it's the product of other choices that were made. Yeah. And in this case, of course, it's the choice for Europe not to be developing, or Western Europe not to be developing its own uh, gas capacity. 
know, they've got a lot of gas reserves uh, underground in um, Spain and elsewhere in Europe that they're just not extracting. And that's just purely for political reasons, because they don't want to have uh, fracking. They don't want to have uh, new petroleum development there. And that's kind of, I think, the um, the original sin, if there is one on this. I mean, along with just abandoning nuclear power that works pretty well. But it's also a form of cheating. And I've written about this with Biden, but it's also true of Britain and Germany and much of Eastern Europe. Joe Biden simultaneously has called for an increase in international oil production. He's called on (laughs) Russia and OPEC and others to increase oil production so that the price goes down at pumps across the United States and he doesn't get it in the neck. But also, he's not willing to change course within the United States because the pressures on him from within his own party make that politically untenable. That is cheating. That's like me saying that I'm not going to invest in certain companies because I have an ethical problem with them, but then encouraging other people to do it and give me the money. (laughs) It's the same thing. (laughs) Technically, it doesn't show up on my, you know, 1099 div or whatever it is you get from your stock portfolio. Technically, it's just a payment that comes in from the outside, but we all know where it came from and what, what was done in order to get it. Just cheating. Yeah. And, I uh, hope this focuses those minds. It's cowardice as well. And I think that should be should be emphasized. Uh, maybe this goes back to some of what we're talking about at the beginning, though, which is an inability and unwillingness to be honest with ourselves about what the choices in front of us actually look like, what kinds of consequences they are likely to have, what kind of unperceivable and unknowable uh, consequences they might entail and to deal with the fact that all these end up being questions of trade-offs and, um, and competing goods rather than, you know, black and white, good and bad. uh, Yeah. and, And an unwillingness to accept as you've written about this week, that history is not destined always to improve. Yeah. And that, there is no such thing as new Soviet man and that there will always be people who are evil and ambitious and in search of power and who will seek it unscrupulously and violently if need be. Which we forget from time to time, especially in the peaceful West. And I spent Saturday watching my kids play t-ball at a competition in the glorious sunshine not a cloud in the sky all uh, sorts of people there watching and chatting with them and i thought well goodness me how lucky i am to be here instead of in ukraine but that's not guaranteed (laughs) that's not because i'm on the right side of history somehow it's because the united states has 13 aircraft carriers Yeah, maybe there's more to it than that, but um, that's certainly a, a part of it. I know you were being, um, I'm being, being literary there, being literary, poetic license. I know what you meant. Yeah, but um, yeah, I, I've I've had some of those same thoughts in in recent days. Um, I don't like to be sentimental about this stuff, but you know, you do think about there are people with with babies who are uh, dodging rockets and trying to get out of their country and don't really have anywhere to go and don't know how are things going to end up for them. 
and that's um, it's hard to take. Yeah, it's appalling. Yeah. You had something else you wanted to talk about today. What was it? I can't remember. Well, I, I just noted that yesterday the Democrats failed to pass through the Senate a bill that would have oh, yeah. preempted every single state's abortion law by wiping it out and replacing it with a regime within which Americans could terminate their children up to nine months. And I saw an awful lot of righteous indignation against this, and I saw an awful lot of... uh, What's the word? Um, Gratitude that it had failed. But I didn't see enough people pointing out that not only is this a bad idea on the merits... It's unconstitutional. Congress has no power to do that. Now, in my view, it also doesn't have the power to ban abortions. I think, much as I consider the practice an abomination, that the Partial Birth Abortion Act of 2003 is unconstitutional. I, I don't think the federal government has the power to regulate that. But by the same token, it certainly does not have the power to wipe out the abortion laws of all 50 states. There's nowhere in the Constitution that justifies this. It is not even that one thing that is elastic beyond belief, commerce. We don't have federal laws that render murder illegal, or mandatory, for that matter. We don't have federal laws against rape. This is not a question of whether or not the... the, issue in question is a crime or is immoral or is condemned by some of us or all of us, this is an issue of what powers have been delegated to the federal government and to Congress. And the power to regulate abortion is simply not among them. And conservatives are very good at pointing this out when it comes to the Supreme Court. That's the case against Roe v. Wade, of course. But they ought to get better at pointing it out when it comes to Congress, because Democrats are going to try this, especially if Roe is overturned. Yeah. And they're going to keep trying it. And we ought to be ready for it. So is this an an enumerated powers argument? Absolutely. There is just no justification for this. The only circumstances in which the federal government is empowered to regulate murder is if the murdered party is in some way closely connected to the federal government. For example, the president, or if they're on a boat, or if they're in the federal judge. There are no federal laws regulating day-to-day behavior. There's no generalized federal police power. This is an astonishing claim for the Democrats to be making. And I personally think it was an astonishing claim for the Republicans to have made in 2003 when they passed their own nationalized law. Yeah. And I I want any such superintendents to be struck down. Yeah, I like the idea of a constitutional amendment. Sure. In theory. Um as I think it was George W. Bush who once observed that a nation that could pass the constitutional amendment wouldn't need to. That's true. But um, I do like the idea of it. Uh, all right. Well, I think that's a pretty pretty full conversation for the day. Shall we take it up again next week? Absolutely. I'll see you then.